Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him into powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. You may be seated this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your mighty word. Father, we pray again this morning that you would anoint this word, O God, that it would be more than mere words and letters put together. It would be more than just a speech or even a sermon. But we pray this morning by the anointing of your Holy Spirit that this word would be a miraculous breakthrough for us, Lord God, a turning point in our walk with you and our Christendom. Father, we pray this morning that your word would do the work that you mean for it to do. We thank you for that and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. It may seem like uh, an audacious prayer uh, week in and week out to ask God to anoint his word, let it be powerful, let it change us, uh, let it direct us. You might start to think if you're, if you're real with yourself, good job, Ted. Um, you might start to think, not you wouldn't think that, but you might start to think how many times can a person change over the course of a month or the course of two months or three months? Should we really be asking God for a turning point and a change in heart and everything every single week due to his word? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. As I've shared with you before, you might feel like if you just sit back and think about it, um, that life is is somewhat long and that we have uh, many days and many chances to get it right. But remember, We've done the math because we like to do that at Edgewater. We don't like to leave things up to uh, the ethereal notions of uh, human imagination. We like to put it on the calculator and see the real data, which, by the way, we're getting scientific this morning. So get ready. Get your thinking cap on. Astronomical terms coming at you soon. Um, when we did the math, we realized that if you live to be the average lifespan of a human being right now, which is 70 to 73 years old, you multiply that by 365, you have just under 26,000 days to do something in this world. It's not a whole lot. And most of us are halfway there or getting close, which leaves us with somewhere between 16 to 18,000 days. For some of us, we're in the 10,000, 5,000, 4,000 range. We're looking at hard-to-buy-used-vehicle-type numbers. That's not meant to be daunting. It is reality. And that I'm saying this morning to say every week when you come in here and we pray and we ask God to do something in us through his word. Yes, we need that every day, because from this day until the day that we enter into eternity, we are battling against flesh and blood every single day, every single week. And we only have so much time to get it right, so to speak. And when I say get it right. I mean to fulfill your purpose, not to become perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. But you have a calling and you have a purpose, and time is short. The reason time is short, in my opinion, is that God loves you so much, He doesn't want you to be down here separated 
by your flesh and blood from him for too long. He's ready to get you into eternity. Let's start hanging out. I'm going to give you a few thousand days to make impacts on other people, but then I want you up here with me. I want to put my arms around you. I want that well done, you good and faithful servant moment. I want to hang out. I want to break bread. You've missed like 10,000 feasts already. I want you to be part of those. Huge party going on, and you haven't found a parking spot yet. Let's get this done. So it's not evil. It's good. But while we're here, we might as well not waste the time because he has a calling and he has a purpose. Amen? Whether or not we ever really come close to fulfilling that purpose, I think hinges on our proximity, which is the title for the next three weeks uh, series. And again, today's sermon title is Tide and Tinsel. Tide and Tinsel refer to tidal force and tinsel strength, which are two um, attributes of a theorem called Roche's Limit. Just stick with me for a second. I promise you can understand this, and I promise it'll make a difference, and you'll enjoy it. Uh, Roche was a scientist, a Frenchman. Don't hold that against him. He came up with a, uh, a theorem back in the 1800s about the proximity of celestial bodies in the universe. Uh, celestial bodies, meaning for the best example that would be easy for everybody to understand, is the earth that you live on and the moon that you see on a monthly basis. Uh, Those are two celestial bodies, two spheres out in the universe. They can only get so close. Uh, He did the math, he theorized, and he was correct that once a uh, a smaller celestial body enters into this invisible line of demarcation within an orbit called Roche's Limit and travels too close to the bigger body, one of two things is going to happen. Either it is going to burst apart, and fragment into uh, a seeming like asteroid belt, so to speak, which, by the way, is how some of the the planets that have rings got their rings from smaller planetary objects traveling too close, and they just break apart, and they start to orbit in a a ring-like pattern. Or that smaller body can enter into Roche's limit, and if it's held together by something tighter, a stronger bond than just gravity which is called its tensile strength, then it will resist what's called the tidal force of the bigger body, and it will will enter into an intensified orbit, but it will not burst apart or break. It will remain whole. Tidal force and tensile strength. So for our sermon today, when we're talking about proximity, what I want you to think about is God as that larger celestial body and you as that smaller celestial body. And what we are attempting to do is broach Roche's limit and see what that looks like. I want you to keep that in mind, because take a seemingly a left turn off course here, but we're going to bring it back in a, in a moment. Something that's been happening to me a lot lately, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's happening to you, but we just got through our series on distracted, and I really felt like that was a word from the Lord for our congregation about the enemy trying to use distractions to cause interruptions in our life and our walk with him and what that looks like and losing our identity and regaining our identity. Remember, it really hinged on the question that Jesus had for his disciples when he said, who do men say that I am? That's what you have to get past first. And then once they label all those things, who do you say that I am? And you have to be able to answer that question. And Peter said, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are Jesus Christ. 
And then he says, it's not flesh and blood, but my father that revealed that to you. Now that you know who I am, I'm going to tell you who you are. You are Peter. You are a rock. And upon this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So first you have to dismiss what men say about your God and your book. And then you have to be convinced about who you know that he is. And then you need to allow him to tell you who you are in his eyes. Once you do that, the next step is growing in proximity to the God that you serve. What's been happening to me a lot lately, what I've been listening to and what I've been seeing and what's just been kind of rising up inside of me is, and I really felt like in worship this morning that God was literally speaking a message uh, for the church that he wants to tell us that he is done with the establishment of religion. He's ready to walk up to the religious temples of the day, take the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we call preachers and teachers from time to time, point up to the structure, the edifice of religion and say, don't you know that not one brick will remain upon the other, but this whole thing is coming down. And I tell you this, once it comes down, I'll rebuild it in three days, but it'll be different than it was before. It's all coming down. I feel like he is completely done with it. I feel like the church of the living God has been held captive by theology and dogma for so long that Jesus Christ himself is just screaming and stretching and ready to break his body out of this prison cell of religion and intellectualism and bring us back to the basis of Paul where he said, I do not bring to you the amazing words of men, but we preach the power of the cross and resurrection. Foolishness to them that do not believe, but power to those that believe and know. Can I tell you a secret? It's okay to invite your non-believing friends to church, but church actually wasn't meant for non-believers. Church was meant for believers. We are by no means ever going to tell a non-believer that they can't. We want them to come and hear the gospel. But the original intent, uh, the, uh, the original motivation of our Lord and Savior was, I believe that he said the Great Commission was for us to go out into the streets and teach. For us to go into the highways and byways. To share our testimony and love with our brothers and sisters. To let our families know who Jesus is. Not necessarily to preach sermons to them, but to walk in love with them. And to show them the love of the one that saved us. We should be witnessing to people outside of church and hopefully what's bringing them into church is a realization that God is real. But if they don't know that before they get here, that's okay. But I just wanted to tell you that little secret before we continue. So if church is mainly a structure that's built for believers, I think by definition, church should be free. I think by definition, The pastor should be promoting liberty. I think by definition, the Bible says he who the son sets free is free indeed. I don't think that we need to trade the shackles of Old Testament legalism for the shackles of New Testament theology and make people believe that if they don't believe the way that we believe and they can't pronounce the words that we pronounce and they're not labeled the things that we've labeled ourselves, 
then they are promoting a false gospel and don't know the Jesus that we know. I think what we should be saying is if you have a heart for God, if you love God, if you believe the Bible, if he is the only way to the Father, you might not have all knowledge, you might not know all mysteries, you might not even agree with my other theologies after the foundation of Christ, but that's okay. We're brothers, we're sisters, we love God, and we can serve God together. Now, if you feel the need to put an additional label on the outside of your building other than Christian, if you feel the need to put a label like Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran, or Catholic, that, that, that's fine. Just don't let it become a barrier that cuts us off. Don't look at me differently because my label isn't Baptist or my label isn't Methodist or my doctrine inside the non-denominational church. I love the notion. I love the ideal behind a non-denominational church. But the reality of it now is not much different than denominational churches. Not by, not by the fault of non-denominational leaders necessarily, although some, but now inside the non-denominational church, we have a split. Community church or spirit-filled church. Now we need labels again. And then inside the spirit-filled or community churches, we have a split. Calvinism, Arminianism. Now we need labels again. Labels that don't exist in the Bible, labels that we invented to try to describe things that we've read about in the Bible, even though other things in the Bible describe the opposite of what we're trying to label. But we have to pick one of the labels so that we can have the group that we're around so we can fit in, so we can speak the same lingo. So if we speak the same lingo, we feel like we're all on the same page. And if we're all on the same page and this guy is smart and cool, that means that I'm smart and cool, which means God is smart and cool, and we can all be smart and cool together, and we know God and the other people don't. Unless they want to become part of our group and talk like we talk. It's this theology in my, in my viewpoint. It's this dogma of theology that I really feel like Jesus Christ is ready to break out of. I feel like we're inadvertently living in the days of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I feel like you can walk down the boulevard of Christianity and on your right hand and on your left hand, there are so many teachers. There are so many um, self-proclaimed theologians. There are so many even prophets uh, self-proclaimed there are so many evangelists self-proclaimed teaching so many different things that it's just like back in the Bible days. Jesus Christ is sitting on the lowly donkey that none of them like. And he's traveling right down the middle of the boulevard while they're teaching their sermons against each other and writing their books so they can wrestle with each other on the shelves of Barnes and Noble. And here comes here comes Jesus on the donkey right down the center and nobody notices him except those lowly poor people that are following him, throwing their clothes and their palm tree, their palm leaves down saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees come busting out of their doors and say, hey, can you keep it down out there in the street? We're trying to teach people about the Bible. And here the Bible's going right down the middle of the street going, well, good luck. That's what we're doing. Love you. Do love you. I feel like we're in those days again. It's craziness. I don't know where I want to go next. I feel like we're approaching or maybe we've already breached a limit. Roche's limit, if you will, in the spirit. And what we're seeing once we step past this boundary of Roche's limit is in our minds and in our spirit. What is stronger? The tidal force of God 
or the tensile strength of ourselves? What is holding us together? What is binding us together? See, I talked a little bit more to Joe this morning just to double check and make sure. You heard on the video that Joe's main struggle for a long time was with depression. Now, that's his animal. That's the thing that he fights or that he has fought. Yours might be called something else. We bear our own crosses, they say. We have our own demons. However you want to put it, it's all cliche, but it does make sense and there is truth to it. We all fight our own battles. So we're using Joe's testimony, so we'll talk about depression. And I was asking him, during the time that he was dealing with it, was he in church? Was he a a Christian by definition? And he said, yeah, absolutely I was. And that's the answer I was expecting. That's the answer I was hoping for. So he was close to God, but something was keeping him from being close enough to fight all the way through this battle. If you want to take away a cliche, if you will, from today's sermon, if you want something for your Facebook page, and I encourage that, close enough is not quite close enough. That's the theme of today's message. So I asked Joe, well, what happened, man? What, What kind of changed to kind of get you past that point? And he said, for so long, he was keeping it bottled up. He was keeping it inside. He wasn't letting people in. He wasn't letting people know. And he was trying to handle it. And I might be putting words in his mouth at this point. Correct me if I'm wrong. But probably felt like somewhere down the line within Christianity, within Christendom, whether it was from a pastor or or multiple sermons and readings put together, probably felt somewhere that God in him should be strong enough to conquer this thing. And so that he didn't necessarily have to open up and tell anybody else or let anybody else know. Maybe he maybe he was even convinced by people around him that if he did open up, that was a sign of weakness and might actually damage the faith of somebody else to see that Joe is struggling with something and God has not been big enough to help Joe overcome it. Is that is that okay? So that's accurate. That happens within Christianity because of the false notions that I really truly believe in my heart. We inadvertently teach and pour into people. It's why you have to be very careful with who you allow to speak into your life. And that is the most dangerous word in Christianity right there. And I'm I'm thankful that you do that. I don't want you to stop. I want to encourage you. I need the amens. But that is a dangerous word because in Christianity, you have groups of people that sit in congregations that are Christians. And then you have an individual who stands at the front who is also a Christian. They all read the same book. And the girl, the guy up front, most likely, more often than not, they've dressed up for the occasion. They're, they've got the right look. They've got the right words. They've got the right book. They've read the right books. They have cute sayings. And things that tend to seem like they make sense. And we don't have a strong enough foundation as Christians to hear when something is a little bit off. And we are trained that when the person at the front says something about God, especially if they're emphatic about it, God says that no matter what I say next, you're supposed to say amen. 
And once you've said amen, that means you've accepted it. That means you're walking away from the sermon. You're walking away from the service with notions that you truly didn't have time to balance out in your own mind because you were taught that the person up front, I don't know, you know that they make mistakes. So I don't, I don't know where we get the notion, but we were taught that when it's when Jesus, when the name of Jesus is involved, we need to amen. We need to get excited and be on board. I hate saying this because I love when you're excited and I want you to be excited. But you need to walk away from services and sermons. You need to be able to weigh out what you've been told. Just because the person up front has the title pastor or has the letters Ph.D. or is called Dr. So-and-so or is labeled an evangelist on their business card or has the reputation of a prophet doesn't mean that everything that comes out of their mouth is yay and amen and now acceptable for your life. It's a dangerous word. It's a dangerous word. We're not about that at Edgewater. Uh, We're about the amens. We're about getting excited, but we're about reality. And we're about truth. And the reality is I've studied a lot. I really try to do my best. I I try to study from all the angles I can possibly think of. And I promise you, I will make mistakes. And when I recognize those, I'll come back up to the pulpit and say, hey, a couple weeks ago I said this. And I, I actually don't think that's necessarily true. I've had to do that once or twice in my life. I'll continue to do that. But I'm not going to even catch all my own mistakes. And here's the real crazy thing. I might say something that's right on cue and 100% correct, and you might hear it totally different. And then you're amening something that got caught up in your own mind that's not true, even if it's not my fault or the speaker's fault. But because of that possibility, you still have to go home and read your Bible. You still have to go home and weigh out the possibilities. You still have to be able to ask questions. If you don't have a pastor or a leadership team or somebody in your life that allows you to ask questions... You don't have a church. You have a religious structure. That needs to teach you not how to think, but how to believe. So we're approaching Rosh's limit. And Joe said, I kept it all in. And as we've learned now, part of that is because of how we're taught or the atmosphere of Christianity. That if we do open up, if we do let it out, then not only are we weak, but we've weakened the testimony of God himself, because we're dealing with something and, and we've been praying and God hasn't helped us to overcome it. I want to tell you right now, when he said you are the body of Christ, he wasn't talking to one person. He was talking to all of us. He said, all of you put together and you're different parts of the body. You know, the I've been I've been up there laying hands on my friend, Justin Chiwood in the hospital, and I've been able to see very clearly. Without the heart pumping. The kidneys can't overcome what they need to overcome. Without the lungs doing their work, the oxygen doesn't get to the muscles and they can't recover. Without the brain staying online and producing the activity it needs to produce, the whole rest of the body's out of luck. Every little part has to do its part or every other part cannot overcome its battle. He never asked us to do this alone. He never said you need to be strong in who you are. He never said you need to be a Fort Knox of faith. Let me read some scriptures that maybe we're not real familiar with. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. How weird. 
Because I thought in order for us to be spirit-filled, charismatic, real Christians, we had to be well put together. Brokenness not allowed. Unless you read the Bible. And saves such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. There's rejoicing in brokenness. That's not what I was taught. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Hold on a second. Spirit filled Christians. The spirit in us is strong and well put together. Binded tight, welded shut, no cracks, no kinks in the armor. Because we are Christians, we wear the name of Jesus Christ. And he is indestructible. Overcame death, hell, and the grave. But not before he cried, bled, and pleaded. Couldn't have overcome it any other way. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God doesn't despise brokenness. God doesn't despise a broken heart and a contrite spirit. God rejoices. God rejoices because he's the bigger celestial body. And when you approach him, when your proximity increases, the natural phenomenon is that you fragment into pieces. If you can breach Roche's limit and stay whole, that has nothing to do with the tidal force of the bigger body. That has everything to do with the tensile strength of the smaller one. What is your tensile strength? What is holding you together? Well, brother, I'm, I feel good. And God is able. And you'll never hear me whine or complain because I know the difference between special, special revelation and general revelation. Well, I am well-versed in oneness and Trinitarianism. I know the ins and outs of the Calvinist doctrine and the Arminian doctrine. I am a theological superman. I know how to talk my way, pray my way, speak my way, and Christian my way through anything. Well, brother, don't you have any, don't you have any struggles? Don't you have any problems? Yeah. I mean, from time to time, we all stumble and fall, but grace is sufficient. You have to understand grace. Five letter word. Interesting. Well, don't you, do you ever have times where you question, oh, ye of little faith. No, no, no. Sometimes there is a storm, but I just sleep in the bottom of the boat. Oh, ye of little faith. Because I am theologically, dogmatically sound. I am surrounded by the rigors of my own dogma. My group says it's okay. My pastor speaks the same way. I am multisyllabic in all of my religious terminology. And sometimes if I'm having a real problem, I just listen to myself talk. 
And then clears it right up. Do you have Psalm 51 in your Bible? Might want to read it. Jesus said in Matthew 21 something interesting to people with the same attitude. Can you believe Jesus said this? The scripture we started off with in Matthew 21, 42, he says, have you ever read the scriptures? Real simple. The stone which the builders rejected, the same became the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you read that? And they were like, what is he talking about? Therefore, I say unto you, Jesus talking, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Hmm. For those of you, and this is a different portion of the Bible where Jesus says this, and I didn't write, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, write it down. But he goes up to the Pharisees and the Sadducees at one point, and he says, you scour all of the land. You read in the scriptures about me, but you don't know me. And you scour the entire land looking that you can make one proselyte, one convert. And when you finally do, he becomes twofold the child of hell. Because now not only does he not know me, when he doesn't know me, he's a clean slate. Maybe somebody can approach him and tell him about me. But once you get your hands on him, he's no longer a clean slate. He is a dogmatic mess. And now the person that encounters him has to erase all of that false theology, which takes forever, just to get him back to the level of pagan. So that now we can talk to him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you go all over the globe looking for somebody that will listen to you. And once they accept your viewpoint, but there hasn't been any change in their heart because your viewpoint is strength and my viewpoint is brokenness. Now you've only binded them even tighter together in their own strength and their own revelation and their own reputation. And when they approach me, by the time they reach the limit, I can't pull them apart because you have enhanced their tensile strength. And now I have to break that before they can feel my tidal force. And they refuse to break. Because they're too smart. They're too well put together. Therefore, I say the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Everybody say fruits. fruits. What he's saying here is all of this gospel, all of this teaching is to get you back to this one place, this place where you have fruits. I'm not trying to make you Albert Einstein. I'm trying to make you Mother Teresa. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness. Most human beings have a hard time with that. Some don't as much. They're not perfect, but you've gone so far over here that I'm taking it from you and I'm giving it to them. They don't even know me, but they bear better fruit. So I'm going I'm to give it over to them and hopefully their fruit will increase. That's big news. Now, whosoever shall fall, everybody say Roche's limit. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. That's what we're talking about this morning. You have two choices. You can either give up and fall back on Jesus and be broken like Roche's limit. Or one day it's going to fall on you 
And he says, whoever it falls on, it will grind him into powder. This is every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess of things in heaven and earth, underneath the earth, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. It's going to happen. But it's better for you if you just go ahead and give up. Fall back on him. Be broken. Fragmented and orbiting around the one who created you. Brokenness. We'll get there in a second. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number one. Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This is the only place in Scripture this word beset is used. The Greek word that's actually there is used. It says here that in order to approach God, everybody say proximity. Okay, this is what I want you to take out of the sermon this morning. Is your purpose in Christ, your calling that is on your life, will only be accomplished if you're able to draw closer and closer to him. And you're only going to be able to draw closer to him if you're willing to be broken. The first thing you have to do in order to move it all, the Bible says, is take these heavy weights of sin that so easily beset us and start to run the race that is set before you. That word beset is a word very similar to proximity. It means nearness, but it also means skillfully placed. So what I want you to open your eyes to, another little secret this morning, is when you look around at the detriment of your own life, if you will, if you're able to point the sins out that you're dealing with, I want you to know this is not a random sequence. It is skillfully placed. The enemy has seen a weakness. He knows the weakness of your fathers. He knows the weakness of your grandfather. That's why it eventually becomes a generational curse, as they say. He's playing on your DNA. Skillfully placed. Take those weights, set them aside, and run. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Nobody's closer to God than Jesus. He's sitting right there at the right hand of God, but in order to approach him, he had to be broken on that cross in order to get there. Everybody say, Rosh's limit. For consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And I want you to circle, if you write in your Bible, verse number four. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. In other words, what he's saying there is you can run, you can try, you can draw as close as you can possibly draw, but you have never and most likely will never resist Unto blood, the striving against sin. In other words, Jesus took the cross. You're never going to have to do that. Okay, the way he was beaten, the way he was bludgeoned, the stripes on his back, the piercing in his hands. Sure, there are still martyrs and some people are called to that, but it is not the level of Christ. He doesn't expect you to resist all unto blood. And none of us that I know of yet have. That's a heavy verse. 
Just strive is what he's saying against sin. I want to give you one more little nugget and then we'll end with Luke chapter 8. I want to tell you this. When we talk about theology, we talk about dogma, we talk about the word of God. What we're talking about is content, right? The content is there. It's not that theology is evil. Theology, the problem with theology in my view is that it has switched from becoming a tool to becoming a mandate. And that's when we get into muddy waters. Theology is not a mandate. It's a tool to uncover and figure out the mandate that's already in the gospel, already in the Bible, already in the word of God. Not all the content is wrong. And of course, the content of the Bible itself is not wrong. But there's one thing that we tend to forget, I think, as Christians, and one thing that is really setting us back as the church. And this is what I really, honest to God, I want you to, I hope you've gotten something out of the message so far that you can take with you. But if you forget everything else, I want you to remember this. Especially if you visit uh, ministries and churches and you try to get as many words as you can, which is generally speaking a good thing, but you've got to keep your head in balance. Intent always precludes content. Okay? Remember that. Intent always precludes content. What that means is it's less about what is being said and it's more about why is it being said. And it's more about how is it being said. Because I'm reading the scripture, the content should always be true. But some people use the scripture in a negative way. And even though they can't violate the content, they have violated the intent. In other words, Jesus intended for everything he said and did to set you free. But some people will use the same scriptures with the intent to lock you down. Once somebody, let me show you the difference. Once somebody walks up in the front of a service and declares... I'm telling you right now, as the leader of this service, everybody needs to stand up and raise their hands. Don't do that. I'm just giving you an example. Everybody needs to stand up and raise their hands right now. That's not necessarily bad content, but I question the intent. I'm telling you right now, everybody in this room needs to get on their knees and worship God. Not necessarily bad content, but I question the intent. Because if the person is is commanding you which way to go, You need to stand over here, lift your hands right here, get down on your knees right here, do this over here. Who is orchestrating the worship? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it an individual who is passionate about something? Passion is good, but the intent is wrong, even though the content is okay. If they were to walk up and say, I really feel like God wants us to raise our hands right now. Boom. Now it's up to you. That's what I feel like God is saying. You do it if you want. You don't do it if you want. And you deal with the consequences. You can leave the service later in between you and God. You can try to figure out, was I supposed to, was I not? It's between you and God. You need to have a relationship with the Lord. I shouldn't be able to dictate that relationship to you. Now, that's just one area. I would like for the gospel to teach you how to be modest in your dress. But if I teach you how to be modest in your dress and you go to your closet and pick out an outfit because Pastor Thad said this, then I am not orchestrating. I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit is not orchestrating your relationship or your walk with God. I am. That's how we build religion. That's how we let theology take its wrong place. And that's how we let intent overstep content. And we end up losing the freedom and the liberty of Jesus Christ. And we end up with a pharisaical approach instead of a gospel approach. I was at a a, a combined um, youth and college rally. My wife and I were the pastors of the college group. And a friend of mine was a pastor of the youth group. And we were having a combined service. I don't remember exactly why. 
I was standing in the back. It wasn't my turn to speak or do anything. And I was standing at the back, very, very dark room. I mean, very dark. You can hardly see like two rows in front of you. Stage is lit up well. Very cool room, just very dark. And um, I was in the back and it was like heavy. The spirit was heavy. And I heard in my spirit, God say, I want everybody on their knees. And I was like, I have the authority to grab the microphone at this point and say that so that I'm a good person for him to tell. So I'm like, okay, uh, okay, what am I supposed to do? And I, I heard as clear as day, and not audibly, but in my spirit, God say, well, you need to get on your knees. And I, and I stood there for a second, and I was like, I'm in the back. Nobody can see me. What is it going to matter if I get on my knees? I mean, maybe if I was up front, I could start a little wave kind of thing. But even, even that's iffy at best. I'm back here, and God said, just get on your knees. So, I, so there was a chair next to the wall, so I turned around got on my knees and started praying. I, I kid you not, within five seconds, the person on the microphone goes, I want to take Pastor Thad's example and get on my knees and worship God. Amen. He didn't tell anybody else. So he just said he wanted to. And he got on his knees and then everybody in the congregation got on their knees. And I was like laughing and crying at the same time. Like, <laughs> only God. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't make any sense. Now, the same result would have happened if I would have just said, okay, and walked up on the stage and grabbed the microphone and said everybody needs to get on their knees. But at least 50% to two-thirds of the crowd would have been like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. And they would have got down on their knees and been like, okay, you know, like, is everybody else feeling weird or is it just me? You know that happens. But instead, the other way where the intent didn't override the content and I just did what was reasonable and what I heard God say and 100% of everybody on their knees knew why they were on their knees. And we're comfortable with it. And it did not quench the spirit for one second. You've got to be careful with who's orchestrating your relationship with God. It needs to be the Holy Spirit and not your leaders. Your leaders should be tools and vessels. You should trust them to hear from God and speak his word. But you shouldn't be choosing A, B, C, and D throughout your week. Because that's what your pastor said you have to do. Even if I'm right, you, don't, you, you still don't have a relationship with God if that's what you're doing. You have a relationship with me. And it's dictatorial at best. Luke chapter 8, we're going to end with verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet. This is a Pharisee of Pharisees. You can stand. For a Pharisee, Leader of the synagogue to fall down at the feet of a rabbi, questionable rabbi at best in the eyes of a lot of the leaders. It's a real sign of brokenness. But he fell down at his feet and he besought him that he would come into his house for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she laid there dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. He was on his way because this man approached him. I want you to see what happened. Ted. Can you be Jesus for a second? I need you to grow a beard real quick. All right. So Ted is Jesus. I'm Jairus. Synagogue. Nice robe. Good reputation. Leader among the Pharisees. I have a sick daughter and I can't get her well. Huge crowd of people. This is what our life should look like. No matter who you are. He started to approach Jesus. Once he hit Roche's limit, if you will, boom, done, on his knees. Couldn't stand anymore. He decided, I'm not going to approach him with my own strength. 
Thanks for the theatrics in the back. I'm not going to approach him in my tinsel strength, if you will. I'm going to give in to his tidal force. I'm going to fall down at his feet broken. When you approach Christ, that's how the approach should look. Thank you. And as he did that, Jesus helped him up and was walking to his house. And then people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood for 12 years, which had spent all of her living upon physicians and neither could be healed by any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her issue of blood was staunched. How did she do that? How did she get that healing? Everybody say proximity. proximity. Let me tell you what this woman did that you may or may not know. You probably know if you've been around here for a while, but what she did was more than what you read about. When a woman has an issue of blood in the Bible, she is supposed to go through a period of a seven day cleansing before she ever comes out and is part of any crowd or touches anybody. You're never supposed to approach a rabbi, period, and just grab them because they have no idea who you are and they're trying to remain in a clean state. And if somebody in an unclean state touches somebody in a clean state, they become unclean. And now the rabbi has to go do his cleansing. This lady, 12 years in issue of blood, everybody knew. There were no secrets. The crowd was thronging him. You know what happens if a lady that is known to have an issue of blood reaches out and touches a rabbi or a leader? In Old Testament times, she could be stoned to death for that. So what you may not know and you may not read in that story is that she was taking her life into her own hands. She was done. She said, I've had this problem long enough. I've heard about this Jesus guy. I need to get close. The garment that he wore was a tallit, which means it hung down to the bottom of his feet, tassels almost touching the sand. So for him to touch the hem means that she was down on her knees trying to get through the crowd, reaching out to grab it. The only thing that could have saved her life was if she came up from that position without an issue of blood. She was broken. That brokenness allowed her proximity to Jesus Christ. Her proximity allowed her to fulfill her purpose. She is written on the pages of eternity. Her story is still talked about in churches worldwide, probably on a weekly basis. She's one of the most well-known human beings that nobody knows her name that ever walked on the face of this earth. And when you get up into heaven, you're going to want to meet the woman with the issue of blood. Everybody knows what you're talking about when you say that. How did she fulfill that purpose? She broke that proximity. How did she do that? She allowed herself to be broken. She allowed her secret to be known. She risked her life for that testimony. And then after that, he walks into the girl's house with the synagogue leader who also approached him in brokenness and he heals the daughter and she raises up. And he fulfills his purpose because of his proximity. So I want to ask you this morning. I know as a free type church and a church that tries to preach liberty, that we're perfectly OK saying that we're not perfect. We're perfectly OK saying that we stumble, we fall, we make mistakes, but we need to get back up and keep going. And that's all good motivational. I agree with that. But my question for you this morning is what are you doing in those times that you're not stumbling? What are you doing in those moments where you haven't fallen? What are you doing in between sins, if you will? Because it's one thing to feel good about your life because you're imperfect and the blood of Jesus Christ covers your sin. But in those moments where you're not struggling at the moment with a particular sin, are you drawing closer to God? Because if you're not, you're just going from crucifixion to crucifixion 
and you're never getting the joy of walking with Christ before and after. All that you have is his brokenness. He doesn't have yours. So get back up when you stumble. Get back up when you fall. But don't just rejoice that his blood is enough. Do something. Draw closer. How many of you in the room today would love a breakthrough in some area of your life? How many of you need a breakthrough emotionally, financially, in a relationship? A breakthrough in your relationship with God? How many of you, you're lying if you don't. How many of you need a breakthrough in honesty? (laughs) Everybody needs a breakthrough in some area of their life. My point in saying that is, We are actually always concerned with the through part. And we don't think much about the break. You don't get through until you break. That's why it's called a breakthrough. And we all need those. Don't be afraid of brokenness. It's the masterpiece of God. It's his Mona Lisa. Brokenness is what he desires. A contrite spirit is what he loves. He didn't create you to be alone. He created you to be fragmented. And when a bunch of fragmented people all come together in the same place, sometimes if you take a step back, it looks like a a whole picture. Unity, anointing, that's how he meant for it to be. So don't be afraid to be broken. Don't be afraid to be known. Don't be afraid to approach Christ. You need that proximity. 